The following presentation from the Utah Open Source Conference held August 28th through 30th, 2008 is underwritten by Knowledge Blue. With a mission to help grow your company focusing on small and medium businesses, knowledgeblue.com. Streaming and podcast hosting bandwidth for this and many other presentations at podcast.utos.org has been provided by Tier 4. The presentation entitled, What I Learned from Agafi, was presented by Scott Paul Robertson. that on? Yep. Excellent. We're good. Um, so how many of you have actually heard of Agafi or used it? Cool. So just to give you the rundown of what it is for those of you who don't know. Um, so I'm a bit of an audio nerd or audiophile as some people refer to us. And because of that, MP3s have an issue. They sound like crap on high-end speakers. And so I got a good speaker system while I was in college and I needed some way to keep that good quality, I mean good if uh, some people, we won't get into vinyl, but the good quality you get from CDs, and so there are lossless codecs like FLAC. But these aren't very good when you have a laptop that has a 20 gig hard drive, because they're big. They only give you about a 50% compression. So I needed to have things in Vorbis. So I wrote a script back in mid-2005, like early summer, that took a directory of FLAC files, you know, with my fancy directory layout, you know, artist, album, file names, and all that. Preserved that directory structure and file names, but encoded everything as Ogvorbis. This was great. It meant I could carry it with me on my laptop and not fill up the hard drive, which was really easy to do. FLAC, like I said, is big. My hard drive was very small. <coughs> It was, it was to provide portability. Um, let's be honest, it's not easy to get portable players that play FLAC unless you go for the Korean ones, which I don't like their interface. Yeah? What is it? Is it Korean? Oh, I guess the Chinese have started. And of course, you can hack your uh, old school iPods too. Works well. But nevertheless, my laptop. It just wasn't an option. I needed something smaller. But it was really quick that I needed something that actually was more robust than a shell script. Because you hit the upper limit of a shell script really quickly for at least maintainability. So I went to Perl. Perl, I started maintaining the tags on the files. So not only did I have a directory structure that told me what was going on, but the files themselves, I could preserve the metadata with them. Um, I went from writing my own algorithm for walking the directory tree and doing comparisons to using Perl's file find module. Um, I added support for MP3s because I ended up buying an iPod. But, uh, you know, it, it, it grew well. And over time, I, I threw it out on SVN in May 05. So almost immediately, I did in subversion. It was on the web. And I think one person I didn't know found it somehow and started using it. I did a quick, a little GUI for it. Um, put it out about January 06. And I know someone in France used that. He had a problem with it, which was kind of amazing to me. You know, these are people I've never heard of. In May 2006, I had it at the point that I realized I needed to advertise, so I put it up on Freshmeat, which is a great way to advertise your product and at least get a quick blurb to a lot of people. And so it was there. That was version 0.9. And by the end of 06, version 1.0 was released had a GUI, command line, worked really well. And it stayed that way for a long time. I had a lot of goals I wanted to do, but other projects were interesting me. And then this past Christmas, I had since found Python. It sounds religious. But, um, <laughs> you know, and I really like Python. I like the way you code in Python. I like the way I think when I'm in Python. It flows very naturally for me. And so this past Christmas, I spent a couple hours and got Augify in Python. It was very rudimentary. It had a handful of features, but I'd started working on Augify 2.0. And yesterday, Augify 2.0 officially released. I fixed that last lingering bug that was holding it from being released. 
And that's where things are right now. So why do you care? I mean, I am a, Augify is really a niche market, frankly. If, if you're an audiophile and you're big into having lossless codecs and that sort of thing, it makes sense. I refuse to have Augify convert from MP3 to AUG because a lossy to lossy conversion loses even more and sounds really bad. And I've had people ask for it, and I say, no, it's against the principle of the matter. And there are things that do that anyways. <laughs> so I've got 10 points. These are things, I mean, when I started Augify, I was still, you know, just generally doing the college programming projects. Nothing really expansive. I didn't have to deal with people in college. You know, you have a homework assignment in school, you know, your lab project. Sure, it might be big, but you don't have to deal with real people. You have to deal with a piece of paper, list of use cases. Since then, I've gone from that to maintaining this project to knowing that people actually care about this thing and want to use it. Um, I'm now a C programmer for Hewlett-Packard working in high availability and clustering. So I'm in a very different world than what this was written in. And it's given me a lot of perspective and things that I've picked up on which I think are really helpful for if you're starting an open source project, if you want to get one out to the people. These are points that I think you just frankly are fundamental. So to start, you need to use version control. Before you even really start coding, you should be in version control. Version control is great. If you screw up, you can go back and fix it. If you delete something you didn't mean to, you can go back and get it. It is incredibly worthwhile. And there are two choices, central or distributed. If you're coming from CVS or Subversion, you've been using centralized. Um, I don't know about many of the professional open source things like Perforce or anything like that. We use ClearCase at work, which, oh, uh, yeah, I'll end there. And I think the decision can boil down between these two models is Subversion or Git. Now, I've used Bazaar. I've used Mercurial. Those are great, too. You, your preference. My preference is Git. Is it because of the nature of the The model is what makes me like Git more. I pick Git out of Bazaar and Mercurial because I think it's, what for starters, it's faster. If you notice this last point here, ridiculously fast, it is. <coughs> You'll be amazed at how fast Git is. But otherwise, you know, if you use Mercurial or Bazaar, I could care less. If you use something like Arch, I kind of care because I still don't have a clue how to do, do things in that. Um, Subversion is a great choice. If you want users to be able to not be scared, Git is really intimidating. And um, I think it doesn't deserve this reputation. Jace? Have you ever tried using SVK? I've never tried it. I've tried it. It's a big pain. Yeah. The problem I've read about SVK, which is a distributed layer on top of Subversion, so it's distributed using Subversion as a file system, basically, is if you're using SVK, People can pull out of Subversion, but they can't push back into your thing very well. Um, I will say one thing is Subversion support. 1.5 made merging a lot better. Of course, Subversion has a long way to go still. But I've been playing with 1.5 because we're actually going to switch to it at work from ClearCase. Hallelujah. And it's getting much better. But still, if you ever do merging in Git, you're going to wonder, what are these people thinking? So, Obligatory. Yeah. If you ever do master the Git world, you can't interact with SVN. Using Git. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Git is really flexible. Um, I think the reason people are scared of Git as version control is because it's like Vim. If you use Vim, you realize there's a core set of commands that really you can get by. If you know how to hit I and start typing, and you can use the arrow keys for heaven's sake, you can live. 
But there's the problem is you turn the page and suddenly you're scared to death because it's talking about doing really weird stuff. And frankly, it's really powerful. And you realize that, but you don't have the time to spend to understand. The problem is, is the people who use Git are the people who write Git. Or the first people who wrote tutorials were the people who wrote Git. And they don't really understand that other people don't think like them and aren't going to get it right off. Um, after this is done in the Q&A, if you want, I can give a demo of all the Git you ever need to know for subversion users. Uh, there's a couple sites that are actually worthwhile. Uh, was there a comment? Okay. This is related to version control. Version control is not a backup. You need to have backups. This is a great point. I had um, two Christmases ago. I was about to start working on a project for a class. Flipped open my trusty laptop, and its hard drive died. Two weeks later, my VPS had a hard drive fail, which, you know, it's RAID 1. No big deal. It's mirrored. Oh, except for the whole drive array crashed. So all the data was gone. I'd lost everything. And I had always thought, oh, it's in subversion. It's on an external system. That's good enough. I'm backed up. It wasn't. I lost all of Augify's history. I had the most recent checkout on, my machine, on one of my machines, and that was enough. So remember, you need to have a backup plan. I, right now, I pay a VPS provider to backup my whole system with daily snapshots, which is good. And I have it on three or four systems. And the great thing with the distributed thing, all of my history is everywhere I go. No one likes this sort of idea. I mean, I don't know if you're on a lot of mailing lists. The flame wars will go. I, I'm thinking of Plug and Lisp and Java come to mind when it comes to flame wars about what's the best language to pick. Oh, yeah. Uh. Because it has a variety of audiences wide in terms of language. Yeah. And its audiences. Has vocal people too. <clears throat> yeah. So in any case, I firmly believe that some languages are better at certain things than others. If you're do going to do a project, you need to weigh really the important matters. What libraries do you need? What are you going to use? What are you good at? I mean, if you're an expert in Lisp, you should. If if you're not expecting to need 20 people to work on this with you, Lisp is great. I mean, or really ambitious college kids who just learned it. <laughs> Uh, the community around the language can matter a lot. I mean, if you want to use this weird feature of Ruby, but only three people on the planet ever use it, it's going to get a little iffy sometimes. So for Augify, because I really care about you know my audio metadata, this would be an example of what I'd consider between Perl, Python, and Ruby. So Perl has audio taglib. Taglib is a C++ library. This is the wrapper for it. It's available in Debian. And CPAN, of course, but I'm not counting CPAN. I'm trying to keep it to the easiest method available. Most, most people consider if it's not in the package manager, it doesn't exist. So it was in Debian. That's great. It only worked in Linux, except for that OS X patch that only kind of sort of worked most of the time that I hosted. Um, Ruby has a single library per format, which is a big pain. No one distributes Ruby libraries. You have to use Ruby gems. And I, I don't know, I'm frustrated with Ruby gems most of the time. But it's everywhere. They're all pure Ruby, so no compiling, no cross, you know, cross-platform issues. Python has one library for every format on the planet. Mutagen, great. Every distro has it because all the Python media players, which there's a number now, depend on it. So they all ship with it. And it runs on every platform, even Windows. This was an awesome, this was a bonus for going with Python for me. <coughs> You might not be able to read that, but it says the bunny loved the scarf but didn't know what to do with the sonic screwdriver. If you've ever watched Doctor Who, the sonic screwdriver, yeah, it is the solution for every problem. I'm told they overuse that back in the day a little more than they do now. But, you know, it solves everything. And just like that, you need to know your tools. You need to know that how to use them and make the best advantage of them. <coughs> so... To start with, I just want to give an example of what my life. This is I code in C at work. So I have my Vim environment tricked out for C. So I don't, ha I mean, I can't bring company source code to show you something hideously complex. 
But you know, this is frankly a big file. It's 300 some odd lines. You can't see everything at once. So I've got an example function being called a couple times. What does it do? Oh, there it is. You know, control right bracket. Found it right away. Um, if I want to know who finds it using cscope, I can do reverse lookups. C tags it as the other direction. Um, using these two tools makes my life so much better because if I need to figure out where is this function defined, who calls this function, who uses this variable, I never leave vim. This speeds up my work because I don't have to switch over to using my browser to search through the code or going to Google. If I'm curious, let's say, I forget some of the printf switches, shift K. Uh, except for this one brings up the wrong printf. So, you know, we tap around. Oh, there's the printf man page in my Vim session. And my Vim window is usually much bigger than this, so this works wonderfully. I want to compile. Oh, colon make. Oh, there it goes. It's built. But let's say I want to You know, we'll, we'll break things for a second. Oh, there's an annoying error. And you know, when you're working with big code bases, this is a huge pain. Well, Vim, when you use colon make, detects that error and pops me right to the line where it is. I do colon C next, and I go to the next one. And so it makes a really easy way for me to do everything I need to do in my day all in Vim. And this saves me tons of time. Um, to give you an idea, my Vim RC which I'll post in this tarball of all these example files, is about 100 lines. So everything I've customized is about 100 lines. I know people who are much more heavyweight users of Vim than I am. Um, my shell, which I consider really important, I have a pretty customized DSHRC. I need it because while I'm in the shell, I need to get around. I need to run things quickly. So I've aliased everything I have um, to rebuild my C tags and my C scope. Single alias rebuilds it for a 250 meg source tree that I use at work. <clears throat> um, I do. My teammates are a mix of, there's a handful of us doing Linux, but most everyone is developing an HPUX. And yeah, I've, I actually have a couple coworkers who do an, work in Eclipse, which is really interesting the amount of effort you have to do to, you know, since our build, we're in clear case, so we have to be in HPX to check in and check out. And yeah, we have a lot of extra wrappers to make our lives work right. Subversion will be wonderful. So we all know there are good ways to code and bad ways to code. If you use Python, they're really strict about the good ways to code. If you use Perl, yeah. Yes. So in any case, you know, you need to at least be standardized in how you do what you do. If you look at the good projects, I think all either have a standard, like the Linux kernel has a very strict coding standard. Because a year later, if you look at your code, unless you have a much better memory than me, there are parts of my code I forget about. Three years later, it happens. Um, ever look at someone else's code? I've seen a mix of these where it's really, really good. The Django project has some of the best source code I've read. And there are other projects that I cringe to think of it. Have you ever looked at the source code for ping? You'd think ping would be really easy, right? Ping is terrible. It is one of the worst pieces of source code I've ever looked at. And actually, that whole tool's utility, the way he wrote it, it's, it's like function pointer heaven. And frankly, it's way more complex than it needs to be. And I don't know how anyone maintains this code. Just to give you an example of why I think following the rules is great is uh, I've got a couple of Perl examples here. So they all do the same thing, which is great. You know, isn't that nice? So let's look at what I call the good version. You could take five minutes, and other than the joins, which I think might throw some people off, this makes pretty good sense. I mean, it even has an out-of-loop print. That makes everything easier. Then there's the bad version of this. I'm not sure how this works. Mind you, it is two lines. This is a terrible Pearl Golf competition, because look, he 
He statically defines a string. Come on, what sort of person does that? Um, here's the best version of this. <laughs> yeah, I knew what this was doing when I looked at it. I love that. And um, this is a great example of Perl golf. I'm told this implements RSA. No idea how. It pipes it through DC, though, which scares me in so many ways. Uh, DC, of course, is a um, RPN calculator with way more capability than any calculator should have. And so there's obviously more than one way to do it in Perl, but some of those were just not the best way to do it. Uh, Ruby has the same sort of thing. In Ruby, we have actually, they're, very, they're fairly loose on their standards, but for example, this works. It prints out some numbers. If you're a Ruby guy, you should notice something that really upsets you, and it's this. This is terrible Ruby, as far as Ruby people are concerned. And I can't type it. The ending bracket? What did you point out? The ending bracket. Because it should be a do end if it's multi line. Brackets are great for do loops if it's one line. But for multi line, multi -line you're supposed to use do end. Because it's much more readable, much more consistent with everything else. And that's just a case of good standards. Bad Python's harder to spot because it usually means you're using real tabs instead of spaces in your indents and upsetting people. It's true. <laughs> There's a reason. Run Python with a dash TT. It'll complain if you mix real tabs and spaces. It's great. So here are links to various community standards. Python, it's an official documented thing. Perl has actually a Perl doc page on it. And by Damien Conway's book, at least he'll tell you how to maintain a style. Uh, this was the only thing I could find for Ruby on the first page of Google. I didn't look any deeper. Like I said, the Linux kernel is actually a great standard. Um, the KNR for C has a good standard of code, which is mostly what we use at work when people remember to. Yeah, enforcement's really nice, too. Like, Perl has Perl tidy, which will enforce a style. Well worth it. <coughs> this is the best thing I ever learned. Literally. I mean, some people are huge on this whole refactoring thing, and this is driving the whole refactoring thing. When I started Augify, I wrote my own algorithm for walking down a directory tree and walking down another and comparing the differences. Well, I did that really poorly. It was really bad. Poor performance. A friend of mine was like, well, why don't you do it recursively? And he gave me an idea, and I went with that, and probably 10 times as fast. But it's still my own code. And then I used file find in Perl, and it was probably 10, 50 times faster. And suddenly, I didn't have three, you know, 100 lines of Perl to maintain to keep that working. Can you use an OS.walk in Python? Um, OS.path.walk. Which one's the one that's iterative? Yeah. So actually, uh, that comes up later. There's fun between the two of them. But you know, because I was willing, once I got over the fact that, yes, I did write this code. Yes, it's my baby. Who cares? Throw it out the window. <laughs> you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes. Oh, that's terrible. But um, you know, it was really worthwhile. And sometimes it takes that gutting of the program and redoing an entire part to make the changes you need, like improving your modularity, your performance, um, the simplicity of your code. The first time you do it is not the best time you're going to do it. The third or fourth try, you might be getting somewhere worthwhile. I don't think I need to say anything here. Does anyone in here not write tests when they code? You'd actually be impressed if you run just you know, companies and managers that don't like to write, spend time yeah. tests. Well, Agile's starting to pick up a lot in Agile. So from what I understand, I'm not an actual Agile programmer, but you write the test, then you write the code. Um, that last bug, bug that I had to fix, this is the test case for Augify to verify I never, ever break this. And you know, it's great. I wrote the test case. I ran it. Oh, it failed. I fixed the bug. I ran it. It works. It does everything I wanted it to do, and I will never make this mistake again. This is a little Augify-centric, of course, so I don't expect you to understand it. Basically, not empty directories were being deleted. Well, well actually, they weren't because Python's smart enough, but they're throwing exceptions, which killed everything. That's bad. And I didn't want to catch the exception because there's actually other reasons to fail deleting a directory that you want to crash. 
So, and they're all the same exception. It was kind of dumb. So anyhow, this is my good reason for tests. They, you don't break anything. You did it right the first time. You don't make it again, the mistake again. I didn't start writing tests for Augify until late into the Perl life, or in, late into my Perl life cycle. It was a hacky shell script. Was, wasn't stable, barely worked. Now I'm using Python's unit tests. It's so much better. Yeah, and Frank, all the basic cases Augify are now covered. Augify is pretty straightforward, frankly. It takes a little bit to quirk out the fact that I'm having to compare directory trees and stuff like that. So there's a lot of support code to even have my tests work well. But once it was there, I can write test cases like that. Now, if you were in the Django community about a year, year and a half ago, there was a group of people who complained that Django kept that Django was a not invented here group. They had a lot of libraries that were in the Django code base that someone else was doing. So why are you maintaining your own? When people didn't realize Django had been around for about two years before it was open sourced. So when these people wrote their code, it didn't exist otherwise. But you should not do this. <laughs> if someone else has written the code, use it. I firmly, firmly believe whatever code you write is part of what you're trying to solve. And that complex tasks are never a good side project because that's what backend backup libraries are. You know, the libraries that support you are always going to be side projects to your main goal. Uh, for example, I was in security class, had to implement the AES algorithm, Rindall. The worst part of it was the finite fields arithmetic, which is really supporting to the main part of the algorithm. I spent way too long on that. But of course, it was college. We couldn't actually use someone else's library. Kind of sucked. Don't re-implement cryptography, ever. Use OpenSSL. It does it right, unless you're Debian. <laughs> and then it does it wrong. But you won't know that. And so this, this last, um, this is kind of the conceptual part from here on out. This isn't very much about coding. You need to act. When I started Augify, it was a hack. Hacks are great for small tasks. But once you get bigger, and especially once you have a semblance of a life and you're not in college just you know, sloughing off your program, programming projects that you get grades for, you need to know where you're going to end up. Know what the goal of your program is, if only so you can plan and say, I've got three hours on Saturday I can code. I can do this. And that makes life a lot easier to manage. Um, frankly, my lack of doing this is the reason why Augify tends to be I had everything working in about May, and I released in August. The doing Augify over again in Python, I knew where I was going. And I could really think about what I wanted to do. And it's really important, I think, to consider how you want to build something in code. Uh, like, Augify is actually an MVC program. So the command that you're running it's calling libraries. It does almost nothing, which is great. It means I can make a GUI for Augify, and it'll be trivial. It means I can support it much easier. It actually means I can test it easily. Um, there's lots of design patterns out there. If you have one you like, use it. Consider how to use it. Consider, do you want someone else to use your code? Do you want to use your code somewhere else? Think about those algorithms, classes, and data structures until you're designing an interface. And this does apply for the command line. A GUI people don't think the command line takes design. I think it does. Uh, a great comment I read about design when it comes to interface design is you can't think like a programmer anymore. You need to step away from the computer. Um, I actually do design in a notebook by hand for whatever it is, because then I'm not thinking about how is this code going to work. Your interface should never be driven by code. This is the quintessential reason why. The comic, not the comic, this. If I go up to a toaster and I want a piece of toast, I put toast in, I push it down. The minimum number of inputs and the default action to run should work. It should not stab me in the face with a knife. That is, I think, one of the best pieces of commentary on the way some people design their interfaces in the open source community, especially on the command line. 
Yes. Um, all but two of my images are XKCD. I like XKCD. And it applies so well. You know, Augify, I, one of my best compliments I ever heard was it has the best default that person had ever seen. If you plunk down and you run Augify, you say, where are my Slack files? And where do I want my Aug files to go? It works. Nothing else was needed. If you want to do MP3s, you have to throw in an argument. But it just works out of the box. And if you've used things like mPlayer, which is a 50-50 chance of working out of the box, maybe if you're lucky, if your distribution has tweaked your defaults to actually use ALSA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't get into my, you know, there's so many programs in Linux that don't get this. Their GUIs are cluttered. They're hard to use. You can't figure out what you need to do to get it to do what it's supposed to do. The better, if you really think about interface design, your user is dumb, and he's going to run it before he ever checks the help or the man page. I'm sure we all do the same thing. I played with transformers as a kid. I prided myself in not reading the instructions on how to get those things to change. And they didn't make those very easy. <laughs> and I'm sure we all have that mindset. I mean. Legos were a different story. They're a little harder. I, I can't look at a picture and build a Lego set. But, you know, none of us like reading instructions. Uh, I overheard someone talking the other day that they had something they wanted to open source, except they were trying to clean up those last few comments. They were trying to fix, you know, the little pieces here and there, get the documentation up to snuff. No one cares about your documentation. Well, no one cares about your documentation until you have released. Ahead of time, it's, it's useless. You know your code. You don't need it. It's good to document while you code. But the minute your code does what it's supposed to do, so your main feature. So when Augify could take a source tree and create a destination tree, I put it out there. That was working. It couldn't retake files based on timestamps. It couldn't re-encode based on timestamps. All of the extra features that make Augify, I think, really useful didn't exist. But once it was out there, I got test results from people who weren't me, who were trying to do things with it I didn't think of. Once you get, I mean, if you're doing a library, it's going to be hard. Your first few adopters are going to have to read through your source code and figure out what each function does. And if you're worried about that's going to hurt your adoption rate, don't be worried. Because the people who are going to use your code right away are going to read through your code anyways. <laughs> it's just the early adopters are the type who don't care about the obstacles. They want what you're providing and will do anything to get it. And like uh, Howard talked about today, you know, those number one fans, your first users are always going to be your number one fans because they were the ones who didn't care. They wanted your functionality. They didn't care about your prettiness or your ease to use or your documentation. Augify didn't have a man page until this recent release because it had a really good dash help. And I don't want to ride in trough all day. So. <laughs> no, it's not. But I love this picture. It's by far one of the cutest things ever. Yeah. It's a rabbit, not a cat, I realize, but it's irresistible. It's a, yeah, I looked at this one for like three days straight because I thought it's just that stupid, annoying, extra cute factor. So hit me with your best shot. Whatever questions you have, my thoughts on things, any of the topics we've just covered, or if you want me to give a run through of Git, I can do that too. Um, I went to a presentation by Hans Fugel a few years ago. Hans is a Vim nerd, and that helped really well. Sadly, he's in New Mexico now, which doesn't help us. But nowadays, I read through the help a lot. There's actually an abbreviated list of every single function that you can get in one single help file. I don't remember what it's called, but if you get, dig around for a couple minutes, you'll find it. Yeah. Wait, what was that? I can't quite hear you. I don't know him. Frankly, I just use the library. I actually have a wrapper around the library so I can use MP3s in the same way I use OGS. 
I should probably contribute that back. It's kind of handy. Oh, yeah, the, the Debian comments a while back? Yeah, you know, frankly, every time I hear Debian doing something like that, I roll my eyes because, frankly, some of the Debian people are that, too. I'm sorry, but Ice Weasel is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> that was when I was like, yeah, Debian's just on my server, not my desktop. I'm sorry. It's we're all, There's opinionated people on both sides of the argument. May, maybe in that one it's more him than the maintainers. And I thought the comment was hilarious. I actually read that whole bug, tra bug track page. I laughed for a good 20 minutes on that. But you know what? He provides a good library. So someone added a comment to, I think it was the package for either Mutagen or uh, what's his thing on top of it? Yeah. And it was like a test case or something like that that was blah, blah, blah as a dick. I forget his name. His name. And so he put in a bug about that, saying this was, you know, terrible. Yeah, it was something like that. It was hilarious. Um, yeah, I don't, frankly, interface at all with the muted, with mutagen, which I've done enough with it. I probably should. I probably like, especially since you know MP3s are a pain because they're so well structured versus like AUG and FLAC, which are unstructured. I wrote a lap, a wrapper library that lets me use both in the same interface. Wait, what do you mean by format unstructured? ID3 tags are one of the most structured, finely defined metadata you will ever see. It's scary. I've actually implemented ID3 myself before. And uh, it's, it's detailed. I mean, every single tag is so specific on what you can put in. There's so much. It's very heavyweight. And so when you work with it in Mutagen by default, you have to know you're working with MP3s. Everything else, it's just like a, it's a dictionary. Here's a key, here's a, here's a value. Here's a key, here's a value. They don't care how many times you use the key. They don't care what the key is formatted like. MP3, the key is one of these, what are they, four-letter combinations, and must be, or it's a comment. And so I wrote a wrapper to make it so everything was just a dictionary. It's great. I should contribute that back. But I'm lazy. What can I say? But yeah. Hmm? Oh well. Oh wow. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those cases where someone who maybe you know you get those really strong personalities. Sometime they might make the best thing ever, but. I mean, Linus, for heaven's sake, you read Linus' comments, and he is not nice. He gets away with it, but he's not exactly a friendly guy. Um, yeah, I'd mentioned Riser, but that seems like taboo these days to talk about Riser. But yeah, Riser, frankly, is a jerk, too. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Um, it's a little taboo, but frankly, I knew people who had talked to Riser in person and asked, this has always been broken. Why don't you fix it? And he's like, no, that's stupid. You're wrong. It's like, that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Anything else? Um, do you have any feel for how big the community around Audify is? Um, I really... Both with people that contribute back and also people that use it. So I've got one guy, Gerald Cox. Never met him in my life. He is my front line for bug reporting. He packaged version 1.0 up for DAG's repository so you could get it in Fedora. He is easily my you know, number one user. Then I have a handful of people who I personally know who give me bug reports. I've never gotten code back, which for the size of the project, I don't care. I've gotten re feature requests. Uh, back when I was doing Augify 1.0 and I was tracking, you know, I was doing serious web tra stats tracking for some strange reason for as few hits as I get. Apparently, there's an open source software hosting site in Brazil. And Augify gets a lot of downloads in Brazil. Never heard from these people, but. You say a lot, are you talking like 100 a year, 1,000 a year? 
It's more than I'd expect. It was like it was probably something like twenty a month, maybe fifty a month, but it was still shocking. I mean, especially since the early versions of Agafi had real issues when it came to uh, non-Latin one character set data. <laughs> now it's in uh, Mutagen. That it was all the metadata. Mutagen does everything in Unicode. That is now over. But yeah. Early versions of Agafi were not very friendly to that, so I was I was floored when I found that. I was getting something like 200 hits a month from Brazil just from that site, pulling, and they were hotlinking my tarball, and I don't care. But so yeah, the community isn't exactly rich. It's kind of a niche thing. I don't really advertise very well. This is probably one of the better moments of advertising I've had. At the moment, um, for a source, we only support FLAC at the moment. Output to OGS and, and sorry, and MP3s, uh, various modes of MP3 as well. But one of the benefits of rewriting in Python, uh, or of this of rewriting it, is it now has a plugin framework. So whether someone else wants to contribute a new codec that it supports, or to asks me to support it. I need a minimal set of information, like for a new source, I just need to know how to make that source into a WAV file. That's really all I need, and preferably dump it to standard out. For an output, I need like a little more, but not much. So now it's really easy for me to add formats. Um, I'm planning to add Apple lossless as a source and destination, so you can go between lossless formats. Um, MP4 is on my list of things to do because it is better than MP3 at least in compression to quality and stuff like that. And it's not nearly as patent encumbered. It still is, but not as bad. <laughs> so. um, at the moment, I'm actually working on a audio tag editor is my goal, because I think all audio tag editors that exist today suck. Yeah. Yes. Um, e easy tag is easily the most powerful one I've used, but it's not easy. I'm very confused by their name. If you use easy tag, it is mind-numbing how badly designed it is, and so I'm. That's my that's my next goal. Uh, it's still going to be toolkit. It's probably going to be. I'm actually going to use Coco for OS 10. I'm learning um, the Python Objective C bindings right now. And then I'll just do GTK2 for Linux. Because frankly, there's. I looked at the cross platform toolkits, and unless you're in Ruby using shoes, which is easily the coolest thing ever for GUIs, and I'm not going to code in Ruby, sorry. Not for that much. I, I do Ruby at work for some stuff. You know, Ruby is great. I actually think they're doing a great job, but I really like the back end setup I have here for tag editing. So I don't see why I want to leave that. I figure if I write the code well, it should be easy to move the front end. So I just remember, sorry, it's kind of off topic for your presentation, but being the audio person you are, is there an online store of some nature that you could actually recommend for high quality, legally purchased music, or is there pretty much none that you'd recommend by far? Um, go to flac.sf.net. They actually have links to music stores that provide flax. The Philadelphia Symphony provides recordings of their concerts in FLAC for pur purchase. Um, there's three or four others that provide FLAC as an option. Uh, obviously, the all of MP3, I don't know if they even still exist, they provided FLAC. And since they were a per megabyte per purchase price, it worked really well for them. But yeah, FLAC is actually fairly, there's a couple uh, indie record labels that provide FLAC downloads. Uh, there's one or two slightly larger sites that provide FLAC as well. It's getting better, but still not great. Uh, frankly, I'm actually pretty I'm pretty pleased now that even the lossy, like Amazon MP3s, are fairly highly bitrate encoded. Uh, iTunes, if you use iTunes Plus, the DRM-free ones, which is which are the only ones you should ever buy, are actually at twice the bitrate as their standard, or it's at 256 on an MP4. That's actually pretty nice. It's not great, but we're getting there. Uh, I do not support 
Amazon is encoding at 256? Yeah, 256 CPR. And, you know, it, I don't have speakers that, can, that I can tell that is a problem. I had speakers I could tell 128 MP3s were a problem. <laughs> Um, Amazon does watermark at least some of their MP3s, but it, it's a, a global watermark. It's not per customer. So if you're bothered by that, that's fine. It's actually really easy to undo, too. Okay. I think it's just a tag in the file. Um, I, I saw somebody that discovered that they modified the audio. So oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But. They probably want to be able to gather statistics on how much people are buying Amazon tracks and then file sharing them. Because they probably need to report, have to report to the record companies, you know, yeah, we're DRM free, but look how few people actually, you know, distribute these illegally. Yeah. Apple does um, fingerprint theirs as well. But it's per customer and it's actually a tag in the audio file, which. When I make an audio editor, we'll have an option to strip. It's pretty easy, too. I'm not aware if they do or don't on their DRM free tracks. They do put actually, but they put customer specific information in the tag, so it may not be watermarked, but yeah, it's easy to track you down. How, how much time do you spend on Audify? Uh, these days, it's very based on how much how heavy things are at work, because there if work has been really heavy, I don't want to touch a computer when I come home, which is kind of annoying in a lot of ways, but it's how it goes. So Augify ranges from I plunk in an hour or two a week to I've had weeks where I'll put in ten to twenty hours. It just it's it's very variable, which is why I don't produce consistent release schedules or even very good consistent plans. Like the next step, obviously, is get more audio format support, and I'm not going to say when that's going to happen because <laughs> I don't know. So, if there aren't any other questions, uh, that's all I have. Unless someone wants to see me play around with Git for five minutes. Um, Augify is in Git. All of my personal stuff ends up in Git. Yeah, no, everything is in Git. Uh, if you go to git.scottr.org, you can see my wonderful web version of Git. Um, I'm, I actually my blog is written in Django. It's actually, it's open source because I'm too lazy. I would, it's not under any specific license because I'm really lazy with that. We can assume it's public domain at this point. <laughs> You know, it's, it's unlicensed code sitting on the internet. What else am I going to call it? I'm not even sure I have a copyright statement on it. But I don't care. It's a blog in Django. There's like 20. I actually get a lot of feedback for that because I have about four friends who use it. So I've gotten a couple patches for it. So get in like five minutes. I've got this new thing. And I've got a file in it to start it. Git init. Not very hard. I think the hardest thing about Git to learn is add is for more than when you just add a new file. It's for whenever you change a file. For every commit, you either have to explicitly add or tell commit to add everything that's changed. I always run commit in that way. So in the, this case, I added my first file. I do a git commit dash m. There I go. If I edit this file, yeah, because I added it earlier. So if we do a git status, which does just what you think it is, you can see I've modified high, but no changes added to the commit. So in Git, when you run commit, if you want to do a more subversion-like workflow, just add a dash A. Adds all the modified files. Um, that will not add any new files. One thing that's great about this is, let's say, for some reason, you've checked in a configuration file that is system-specific that you don't want to have in your repository. Git RM will take it out of version control, but not delete it, which 
can be handy in a lot of cases. And if you RMophile, I can't remember if it tracks that or if it needs. I think you then have to manually uh, do a git rm after that. So just to do an empty git commit, it says, well, I can't. There's nothing there. But git commit dash a. What is this? Yeah. That's the trickiest thing I think there is in git to get used to at first. Is it just because I modified it does not mean it's going to be committed. Um, <clears throat> so I'm here. Yeah. No, once you, so it's per commit. So if I added a file three times before I commit, I need to add it once. But yeah, so git commit dash a, most people I think are going to work in this sort of mindset. So what if you edit the file, add it, don't commit and edit it again. You, need to re you don't have to re-edit. Oh, okay. So Git, Git is in a state where it says, okay, I have, I've committed here and we're working. Once you hit add, until you commit again, that flag is marked. Oh, okay. um, I want to put this on my server, so... I tell it where to push it up to. Oh yeah, it's not there. That makes things hard to push. There's a flag to do it, but I always forget how. So to copy a git directory in all of its history is git clone. And I can just say, so I create new2. New2 has the file. I put new2 up on my server, and I forget the dash r because I'm stupid. All the fun git stuff goes up. There's actually a better way to do this. This is not the preferred way to push. What you do is you do a git clone dash dash bear, which only takes the metadata rather than the live files. That's what you put up online for people to clone from. Actually, you can create one by just deleting all your files and having a .git directory. Actually, it's by taking the .git directory and pulling it up a level. So I'm cloning remotely here. Uh, I actually always do this after I push up a copy because in new 3, if I do a git push, it knows where to push it to because it goes to where I got cloned it from. You can manually edit this in the git config file, but I still don't understand what this line means, and so I prefer git to do it on it, to set that up on its own. That's, that's some of the git magic. It's, what? Yeah. So, I just don't think about it. So if I clone from a remote repository, the origin, so where it pushes to, is wherever I cloned it from, which is handy. Um, git pull is just like an SVN update. grabs the changes from upstream. You can specify URL and tons of voodoo magic stuff. Fetch doesn't give me any output. <laughs> this is a fun thing. Uh, download objects and refs from another repository. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. Pull does apply it. Yeah. Pull does everything. Merge. So if there's upstream changes, pull will try to apply them right off. Yeah. Yep. And so the. So when I use git, I'm still coming from kind of a subversion mindset. So for me, I use git clone to create copies, git push and pull to put things up, git commit dash a, and that's git. Git is really cool when you... Yeah, I mean, that's how I use it. Now, I just created a branch right there. 
it's local. And you know, Subversion has the whole file system mucking about with naming and conventions and crap. And no, I just did that. Let's check out. Is that switch? In Subversion? Branch doesn't switch you to the branch. Uh, I think that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so git branch new, and then I'm not in that branch, so I do a git checkout new. That's kind of weird for a subversion user. I think I wish they had named it switch, but whatever. So if I'm in the branch, I make more changes. And I don't know why this. Okay. Why is git commit dash a not working? Oh, I don't know why, but it was untracked. Weird. So I can do and I think it's What's get merged from a branch? Oh, get merged in the branch name. Yeah, this just did it. And so branching in Git is <coughs> easily the most powerful thing. So when I was doing Augify, there's os.walk and os.path.walk for doing directory tree walking. <coughs> the difference is one is iterative and one is recursive calling functions you provide. Recursive calling functions you provide gives you that cool, it's like Lisp feeling. Um, and I wanted to see which one was better. Like seriously, which one would be faster and more efficient. So I wrote up one, and then I created a quick branch, switched to it, wrote up the other, and I switched between the two to see which one was performed better. It turns out os.walk, the iterative one, the one you're supposed to use, is a magnitude, uh, an order of magnitude faster than the other one. They use the same underlying structure, but something about not having to create new stack frames, I think, helps. Go figure. Yeah, well, that's a function call tends to be a stack frame. It's not one-to-one, -one, I know, in Python, but if you think like that, it helps, at least me. So that's the get in five minutes and why you should use it bonus presentation. But yeah, it's... Uh, I'll actually post up on my blog tonight. I'm in the uh, Utah Open Source Planet. Uh, link to a great thing called, I think the site's called Git Magic. And they try to present Git in a way that will not scare you to death. And they actually do really well. He doesn't present some things in the best way ever, but for the most part, it gets across this and starts getting you into the scary, weird, trippy stuff more easily. But yeah. That's all I've got. Uh, we'd like to thank Scott Robertson again for his two presentations. <laughs> what he learned up from Logify and a crash course on Git. And also the room sponsor, Guru, La uh, Guru Labs. Her website is gurulabs.com. Uh, we have some surveys on the table in the back corner if you'd like to leave some feedback. Uh, thank you again, and thank you, Scott, again. Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.